Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Hey, Andrew. Hey, everybody. I'm doing pretty well. Hope you're well. Hope everyone else is well. Everyone is well. Yeah, it's a nice day here in D.C. We had a nice week off last week during the Moon Festival, um, and it is great to see you on the other line here. Great to be back podcasting. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm going to waste no time with the prelude here. Uh, email at sharpchina.fm if you want to get in touch with us for future episodes. But Bill, we'll begin with the latest on a potential meeting between Xi and President Biden. I will read from the South China Morning Post. China and the United States do not necessarily have to head to a confrontation, President Xi Jinping told visiting American senators on Monday. It was the strongest sign yet that he might attend the APEC summit in San Francisco next month, raising hopes also for a meeting with U.S. counterpart Joe Biden. The the Thucydides trap is not inevitable, she told the bipartisan delegation headed by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The world can accommodate China and the U.S. in their respective development and common prosperity. Lu Shang, a specialist in U.S.-China relations at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, said the surprise meeting, quote, reversed the communication mechanism between the U.S. Congress and China that had been stagnant for many years. Although Congress has relatively little power in foreign policy, Schumer can personally understand China's intentions through the visit and convey them to Congress, which is of positive significance, Lu said. So, Bill, what do you make of the latest developments here? The congressional delegation was a surprise to me, and it certainly seems like things are trending in the right direction as far as a, a meeting between Biden and Xi about a month from now. So I think that all, all signs now are that there is going to be uh, Xi is going to come to APEC and that there will be a meeting. I think that it's not a done deal, obviously, but I think, you know, something particularly egregiously bad would have to happen to derail it at this point. Uh, the Chinese side clearly wants the meeting. The U.S. side wants the meeting. And both sides have been doing a lot of work to re-engage, so to speak, on, you know, between the grease, between the, the wheels. Yeah, in between the multiple visits by U.S. officials to China, this latest congressional delegation, you know, we had talked and certainly had heard that Wang Yi, the top diplomat, was going to be traveling to the U.S. pretty much right about now, to mm-hmm. because usually you have these high, you know, high level visits that sort of again figure out what, how do the meetings going to take place, what the agenda is going to be, work out all the details. Um, you know, and I think the lower level staffs are doing that, but usually there's also sort of a higher level engagement. Um, that may not be happening just because of the calendar, because uh, the, the Chinese are hosting the EU's top diplomat starting Thursday. Then they have the Belt and Road Forum next week. Um, so I guess if Wang Yi is still going to come to DC, it's probably not until later in October, which would be closer to the uh, closer to uh, a Xi visit to San Francisco. But then again, that um, it may be at this point that it doesn't really matter. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, it certainly, you know, isn't, you know, the, the expectation after the Blinken visit was that she, then for Mr. Qinggong would come as reciprocity, sort of a reciprocal visit that, that didn't happen, obviously. And then it was supposed to be Wang Yi. That hasn't happened. But in some ways, I guess it sort of doesn't matter potentially for the purposes of a Xi Biden meeting next month. Um, I mean, you had last night a car in San Francisco rammed the, the PRC consulate. Right. Uh, drove into the visa section. And that's, you know, we don't, still don't know exactly what was going on there. Fortunately, no one was injured except for the assailant. Um, but that's not a great symbolic move for U.S. China relations. But I don't think even something like that is going to, you know, 
Chinese are angry, but it's not going to derail a potential Xi visit. Right. And a Wang Yi visit would be more important symbolically for the sake of reciprocity or at this point, I don't think speaking. It, 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 at this point, it doesn't necessarily matter. I think, you know, the fact that she took the time, I mean, the, the U.S. side said they met for 80 minutes with Xi Jinping on Monday. Uh, I think, you know, he he wouldn't have taken that meeting if he wasn't signaling that he personally wants a stabilization relationship. And, and I really think he right. wouldn't take that meeting so close to APEC if it, it weren't a really a a sign that he also is is very likely to come to the U.S. for APEC and to meet with Biden. Yeah, eight, 80 minutes was longer than expected, according to a lot of the reports. It was a more substantive meeting. Yeah, these meetings, you never you never really know, I think, how long it's going to be. But 80 minutes is pretty long. But you have, you have a translator, your interpreter, so you're probably half that time. Mm-hmm. Schumer's Chinese, I don't think is great, but could be wrong. Well, and credit to Xi for prompting me to go to Wikipedia to learn what the Thucydides, Thucydides trap. trap is, uh, an apparent tendency towards war when an emerging power threatens to displace an existing great power as a regional or international yeah, head. Popularized by Graham Allison at Harvard. The Chinese, you know, yep. the Chinese love him. I don't know. I think that's it's a little bit of a... Um, I can see why it's near and dear to Xi's heart, given yeah. some of his priorities yeah. and, and uh, goals for China. I think you also see that the, on the Chinese side, I mean, between the U.S. visits and the various sort of re-engaging and dialogues and other names that have started, you know, for the Chinese side, they certainly see, you know, they would prefer the relationship to cool off and to 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 not not to cool off, but to to calm down and be more stable because they've got all sorts of other problems they're dealing with. And so if they can at least stabilize part of the U.S.-China competition, that just gives them more running room, more breathing room for some of the stuff they're trying to achieve. Right. There has been a sharp departure from some of the ultimatums we heard like three or four months ago, where if the U.S. wants engagement, then we need to see them do X and we need to see them do Y and live up to the four Ps or or what have you. There's been less of that right. language over the last um, month or so, which I think is telling in terms of what China wants here. Yeah, I mean, they still talk about back to Bali and what was uh, what they say was agreed to at Bali uh, last November. Um, and, and also, you know, the G20, she's skipping the G20 in India, sending his premier is one thing. Um, you know, she skipping APEC uh, says a lot to the other countries in Asia too, right? So there are right. a lot of reasons why the Chinese side really should and needs to send their top leader to an APEC, even if it's in the US, right? And so I've always thought it was it was unlikely that they will not want to send Xi. I think they did a pretty good job of sort of making the appearance of potentially skipping it. And then of course, the US wants them to be here too, and whatever. It's sort of the whole process of where the Chinese are very good at using real and perceived leverage. Um, and so I think ultimately, though, we end up with we're back on the road to Bali, so to speak. The U.S.-China relationship has some elements that appear to be stabilizing, um, and she should be in San Francisco. And I mean, it's about a month away. Yeah. Well, and one other note before we move on, the Wall Street Journal had a headline this weekend, U.S.-China both try to gain upper hand ahead of Biden-Xi summit. As soon as the coming days, the Biden administration is expected to roll out long-awaited updates to export control measures that would further restrict China's access to advanced semiconductors and chip-making tools, according to people briefed on a draft of the updates. Timing of the release hasn't been finalized. Beijing has objected to what it calls persistent, quote, technology bullying by Washington. 
And then further down, China, um, the Chinese embassy in Washington on the possibility of export controls said, quote, China firmly opposes the U.S.'s overstretching of the national security concept and abuse of export control measures to wantonly hobble Chinese enterprises. Um, So first of all, every time a PRC representative complains about the U.S. overstretching the concept of national security, I can't help but laugh a little bit because every conceivable industry or product is considered a national security issue under Xi. Um, But as far as this meeting in November, on the one hand, it does seem like the Biden administration has been working to make this happen for the last several months. And then on the other hand, it sounds like they're going to move forward with new updates to the export controls at some point before November. And I'm not saying that's a bad idea, but it seems like it could jeopardize the possibility of actually getting Xi and Biden across from one another in a room together. What do you make of the considerations as they decide when and how to proceed on that front? So I think part of the Commerce Secretary Ramondo's visit in August, um, you know, the visit where she became the brand ambassador for Huawei for a few days. Right. <laughs> a lot of cell phone cases. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, they they set up this working discussion group where they talk about, the, like, I think one is specifically focused on, like, export controls. And uh, I think part of the goal of what the Commerce Department has been trying to do has been to to communicate with the Chinese that, and, and I think also one of the treasury groups that was set up after Yellen's visit is to communicate to Chinese what the U.S. is doing and why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's basically it's telegraph know, it. Right. And so, you know, we, we, we I've certainly been hearing well, something was supposed to drop last week. There's updates to the October 7th semiconductor controls. Uh, nothing has hit yet. There was a Reuters story about a notice going up, I think, on the Office of Management Budget website on Monday saying basically which was a sign that something was coming and it still hasn't come. It was there was a holiday yesterday, a federal holiday on, on Monday here. Um, but I think something should be imminent. And mm-hmm. certainly what I've heard, and again, we don't know until we see it, is that this is going to be, we talked about on a previous podcast, I think originally the idea, especially after the big chip companies met with the various administration officials in July, was that, that whatever the updates were, were not going to be that onerous. Since then, I've heard that actually this is pretty pretty tough, that some companies are going to be surprised, um, potentially, especially NVIDIA, will be unhappy with um, some of the updates. Okay. Uh, we'll see, right? It's never official until it's out. And I think that there's probably some pretty furious lobby going on over the last week or so. Even now, and, as uh, we record, even, sure. Maybe even as we're recording. Um, but I think to your question, though, I think the Chinese at this point are not likely to be surprised. And okay. I think I think Th- that's from, ultimately what I, what I was wondering. Factored it into the sort of decision about you know, engaging with the U.S. and having she come is that it'll be something they'll get upset about. They'll make a lot of noise about, but it it, it is no longer it is not a stumbling block to she coming to to San Francisco next month. OK, yeah, because I, I was reading that story and, and wondering to myself whether there was some sort of unspoken mutual understanding between both sides that whatever happens on the export control front, it's not going to scuttle a meeting on the sidelines of APEC because otherwise it's a pretty big risk to take after this months long effort to try to sort of re-engage and and, and and restore the relationship. That article you quoted from the Wall Street Journal, I mean, I think it talked about part, you know, some officials worried that 
rolling them out now would upset the Chinese. And, you know, for all we know, the Chinese, uh, you know, it, it's unlikely the Chinese going to say, oh, yeah, no big deal. They're probably saying it's going to mess things up, even though, in fact, it won't. Mm-hmm. Just to see if they can't sort of strengthen, you know, strengthen the argument right. of the people in the administration who are saying delay. Because from the Chinese perspective, if they can't prevent them from happening, at least they can, you know, delay them and buy time. Right. Yeah. So, um, so it is. It is. I think a little. We're now to the tenth of October. Um, uh, it's a bit. Um, uh, it, it just. It's. It's a little strange. I think. I think it's the eerie. idea was to get to get it out on the honor about the anniversary. Um, so if it's not out in the next couple of days, I think there's something's going on. Would be my guess. But again, that's a guess. Okay. Well, we are going to come back to the semiconductor issue. Uh, for now. As far as the congressional delegation that was in China this week, all of this was happening with the Hamas atrocities in Israel unfolding in the background. Um, And Chuck Schumer said uh, to Xi, I urge you and the Chinese people to stand with the Israeli people and condemn the cowardly and vicious attacks upon them. And um, this was hours after he blasted Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi for showing, quote, no sympathy or support for Israel during these tough, troubled times. That's from Bloomberg. And then from the FT, another Schumer quote, uh, a bunch of us made the request that China use its influence in Iran to not allow the conflagration to spread. Uh, This was Schumer talking to reporters after his meeting with Xi on Monday. Quote, Xi said they have influence with Iran in many different ways, and we asked them to do everything they could. And I'll read the quote from Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning. China has stated its position on the current escalation of tensions between Palestine and Israel. We are deeply concerned over the escalation of tensions and violence and saddened by the civilian casualties caused by the conflict. We oppose and condemn acts harming civilians. The priority now is to end hostilities and restore peace as soon as possible and work together to de-escalate the situation. So, Bill, honestly, this is tough to podcast about, and it sort of makes the rest of our podcast today um, feel kind of trite and inconsequential, like the scale of the tragedy over the weekend and the images we've been seeing for the past few days. All of it makes it tough to focus on abstract foreign policy questions. But to the extent it's possible, like what are you going to be watching for on the PRC side as China responds to what's happening in a region where China has been, frankly, a lot more active over the last couple of years than they had been in the past? So I think, you know, the, the Chinese official statements so far have really, I mean, they're not surprising. They're, um, you know, basically they're not condemning Hamas for its terror attacks. It's basically sort of calling for restraint and, you know, regretting any any attacks on or, or civilian casualties on both sides. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, and calling, you know, calling for a restraint and basically ceasefire. I think that there there are some Chinese nationals who are missing, who, who may have been um, either killed or taken uh, hostage. And it's going to get a little more difficult if um, it turns out that any uh, PRC citizens were victims of any of the like Hamas executions or some of the awful stuff that's been put out on places like Telegram. If any right. of the victims shown in that turn out to be Chinese, um, I think that ultimately, um, you know, the, the Chinese have, have always been, I mean, it's very complicated 
I mean, the Middle East is just like, I hate talking about it because it's like, how do you possibly know what's going on? I think on the Chinese side, they've started to get more involved in the Middle East. Obviously, they brokered this sort of right. around they, Saudi Arabia doing their embassies. And then, you know, the Chinese media got a little hyped up and said, like, oh, Xi Jinping is going to bring peace to the Middle East, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, a lot of, I think, what their approach is has been, you know, again, going back to the broader sort of China as the leader of the global south, the global south, just like with the Ukraine war, where, you know, in spite of the Russian invasion, a lot of the global south either doesn't care or will fall more on the side of Russia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the Chinese champion the Palestinian cause. I think for them, they look at sort of much of the world, the global south, and the global south is not going to be on the side of Israel. And of course, as the Chinese say, you know, officially in various media propaganda is, of course, everything is, it's really the U.S. is behind it all, right? Right. Um, and I think the playbook for the Chinese is basically sort of the equivocate both sides, you know, everyone needs to show restraint. Ultimately, it's the U.S.'s fault. And also, it's really appealing to sort of the broader global South community, which tends to be, I think, more supportive of the Palestinian position. I mean, and it's an awful situation. I mean, Gaza is a horrible place. And, and what's happened there is horrible, but it doesn't excuse beheading babies, which is what we're finding out, you know, some of the Hamas terrorists did over the weekend in one of these kibbutzes, right? I mean, and so I think also from the Chinese perspective, it is as more images and more more comes out about what Hamas did, right? In like Israel, neutrality should be untenable. Um, yeah, and they, yet right. That they, may they, be where they land. Right. I mean, that's that's a good way to put it. I think there 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 there's, but then I think the Chinese have other things to consider too, right? Obviously, they're big supporters of Iran. Um, they right. do not want to see a broader. Um, I don't think they want to see a broader Middle East conflict, Middle East conflict, where you know they just hosted. The Syrian president in, in Hangzhou, right? She met with him. He went for the Asian Games. Um, I, I don't think they want to see uh, a conflict between Israel and Syria or Iran, um, especially if something were to happen with Iran and it, would, it drove the oil market crazy. You know, a huge spike in oil prices does not help China, you know, given mm -hmm. the state of the current economy. Um, there are, though, I think also going to be people who will argue, just like they argue over Ukraine, oh, actually the Chinese will think it's good if the U.S. gets sucked back into the Middle East because then there'll be even more distracted. There's multiple between, fronts draining. Between resources. Ukraine, the Middle East, and, you know, what they really can't do anything in Asia. And, you know, then you'll be people saying, oh, this this is bad for Taiwan, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I think all that stuff is going to start playing over the next few days and we'll certainly be hearing I think some of those some of those claims. And by the way, that's another reason this is hard to podcast about right now is because there's just a giant vacuum of information. And so it's being filled with a lot of people who are theorizing one way or another what this means for China and China's involvement in all of this. And it's just right. it's hard to say right now. The only concrete facts we have are unbelievably tragic based on the last yeah. 72 to 96 and hours. And I think what you what you said, it's sort of like what the Chinese, you know, they try to do the straddle with Ukraine where, you know, they similar language about condemning all forms of violence and attacks against civilians. And yet, you know, obviously they've tilted towards the Russian side. And right. so one of the things we have to see over the the next, I mean, I think this, unfortunately, this is the response to the attacks over the weekend, I think is going to play out over a fairly long time. So we're going to have to see over the next few weeks sort of how the external messaging from the PRC evolves. Um, and whether or not it sort of falls into a similar pattern that we saw over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where a lot of it is sort of parroting or amplifying Russian messaging and disinformation mm -hmm. um, with sort of a key theme being it really the U.S. is the problem. Right. And that's a message that resonates in a lot of the world.
Yeah, no, and and look, if things do get messier, there would be strategic costs to China, but also strategic benefits as far as the U.S. becoming overextended and drawn into another prolonged conflict um, that will drain resources right. and, and divert attention from whatever China wants to do in the Pacific. If they wanted to, they being PRC leadership, if they wanted to put pressure on Iran, how much leverage did they have in that relationship? I know that Iran, that the president visited earlier this year um, and there were cooperation agreements signed. I, I know that the, Iran was at the center of the Huawei arrests um, five or six years ago and that whole controversy. So it, in general, what does that relationship look like? That's a great question. And I don't, I don't know the answer of how much leverage they really have. In some ways, it's a question of like how much how much leverage does China have over North Korea, where some people argue that China can tell North Korea what to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and other people say, well, they can have influence at the margins, but not... It's not like mean, a junior partner. Yeah. So I think uh, I think they definitely have influence, but could they or would they want to say to Iran, you know, stop supporting Hamas? I don't know if they want to, but even if they did, I don't know that Iran would necessarily listen. Okay. Um, and... So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how the Chinese, you know, they they have a Middle East envoy who was trying to get on the phone and talk to people. Well, you know, they've been talking a big game about how they're getting more involved in the Middle East. We'll see if they can play a constructive role. I think one of the problems here, of course, right, is given what Hamas did over the weekend. I mean, from the Israeli perspective, there's no possibility of a ceasefire and then having peace talks with the people who beheaded babies in your, right. you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's over. They crossed the line. The capacity uh, for the Palestinian side, some people say. The, so, so I think this is going to go on for a while, and it's going to be awful. And you know, we'll see if the Chinese can end up playing a constructive role. I think it's going to certainly challenge their diplomats because, again, the Middle East has been such a just such a vortex for everybody who gets involved, and and the, the Chinese have been. You know, they have a lot of commercial heft. Mm-hmm. Um, they they've I think been able to be pretty good at cherry picking some benefits without actually getting too involved. I'm not sure that kind of approach is going to work in such a big crisis like this. Yeah. Well, we shall see. Um, but again, it, oh, everything else on the podcast pales yeah. in comparison to the suffering over the last couple of days. And our, our thoughts are with the people in Israel and the civilians who are, I'm sure, going to suffer in Gaza in the wake of all this as well. Um, it was just really, really chilling to watch all of that unfold and has led me to hug my little six-month-old son a lot more often over the last couple of days. So um, thinking and praying for everybody over there. It's just awful. Um, And so no easy way to transition, but to go from that back to uh, one domestic news item before we talk chips, um, the National Propaganda Ideological and Cultural Work Conference was held Saturday and Sunday and has made it official. There is now Xi Jinping thought on culture to go with Xi Jinping thought on economy, diplomacy, military, environment, and legal affairs. Um, what should we know about Xi Jinping thought on culture? Or is it too early to tell exactly how this might materialize? So... Um... We should know that it's a big deal. Uh, this meeting, this national propaganda and ideological work conference is held every five years. Um, the last two in this year, uh, 2013, 2018, 
were the national propaganda and ideological work conference. This is the first time they've added cultural. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so I think what, what, and usually coming out of these conferences, you get agendas set for ideological campaign, uh, tighter control over the internet. Um, some of the study campaigns or, you know, that, that the party has to go through um, this, you know, adding cultural to the actual title of the work conference. And then of course, rolling out this deeping thought on culture, Again, I think is from a political system perspective, it's quite important. I do think it's going to lead to more of an ideological campaign, but more broadly, it's the culture idea is about, um, it's both internal, domestic and external. Um, it's it's about sort of one of the things that she's been really been pushing is this idea of cultural self-confidence, which is a, really about, you know, it, it ties into this like, we're this 5,000 year civilization, you know, unbroken civilization is the party line. We have this wonderful culture. It's a broader sort of rejection of Western ideas in many ways, mm. but it also ties into this modernization and how you know China is going to modernize, but modernize in a Chinese way to sort of be simplistic. And it goes back to one of the things that came out of the Party Congress last year, what's called like the second integration, uh, which is really sort of integrating Marxism with traditional Chinese thought and culture. Okay. Um, and so it all ties together in sort of this new modernization that the Chinese are pushing that under Xi Jinping um, and the part. Of, and so this culture piece, I think that's part of where it fits in. It's a little bit, again, this is, we're going to be hearing lots more about it over the next days and weeks. And there's some, some commentaries today that sort of talk about it. It's hard to say exactly what it's going to mean, but I think it's pretty easy to say that it's very important because uh, one the work conference, but two, also just the fact that now it's specifically Xi Jinping thought on culture. So we have, you know, Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy and it drives Chinese foreign policy. This is going to drive all sorts of the sort of the ideological system, the ideological work, the propaganda system, media, the arts, et cetera, are all going to sort of have this overarching idea of Xi Jinping thought on culture. What that is exactly and how that's going to inform different kinds of um, like new frontiers shows, of propaganda. Movies, we'll find out. But it yeah. has an external element because it also part of the push. And it's just, it's been something that the Communist Party has been pushing for for a very long time, predating Xi, which is increasing their share of international discourse power or increasing their international discourse power, meaning better ability to talk about China globally in the way that the party wants China to be talked about. And this, mm-hmm. this then is also, I think, feeds into that. Well, and they talk about a little bit in the readout of the meeting, we're going to see even more efforts externally to uh, shape and control how China is talked about globally in any language, but especially in Chinese and especially in English. An even firmer hand is uh, tough to imagine because that was my reaction when I read the first principle here, strengthening the party's leadership over the work of public communication and culture. Like from my vantage point, the party has been leading pretty actively on public communication and culture in China and even in the West. I mean, they've exerted their influence on Western art based on what they deem acceptable um, and so I just am curious what it looks like now that these are explicit guidelines and explicit yeah. goals well, moving some, forward. Some consultant can probably make a lot of money writing the paper to Disney about how to do their movies now using Sheet <laughs> Based on oh. these seven principles that are <laughs> sure it's unbelievably broad. Yeah. They'll, they'll um, be asking about it soon. Um, I, I think also, though, you know, some people will look at this and say, oh, you know, this is a sign that Xi Jinping is not confident in the state, in the ideological situation in China. 
um, you know, that, that all the efforts they've done to date are still, they're still worried that they're not enough. Um, Hmm. maybe I think, I think that, um, I think also though that this is just how the party rolls, and so they're never going to say, "Oh yeah, we're done. We don't have to control." It's always about more control. It's always about more, especially around propaganda and ideology. I mean, it's one of it's a key pillar of party control, and so, um, it, it, and I think also though to, to the point about being sort of maybe feeling a little bit, maybe confidence not the right word, but feeling a little bit um, sort of concern is just. You look at how across the board, Xi Jinping has been hardening the system at right. every level. And so this is obviously also another piece of that hardening around sort of the ideological sphere. And then, you know, you wrap it under culture and it also helps tell a better story about, you know, sort of helps build more nationalism, more more national pride. It helps with these Chinese way that, you know, the Chinese style modernization that they've been pushing. I mean, it really all sort of, fits together with a lot of the themes we've seen in the last years, especially the last few years, especially what's yeah. coming out of what, what came out of the 20th party Congress a year ago. This is why when I read the Chinese embassy lecturing the U S about overstretching the concept of national security, I'm like, are, are you kidding me? Like this is the, <laughs> the biggest pot in the world calling the kettle black. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see what it turns into because, again, there's already just a lot of very strict control yeah. over culture. And so I'm a little bit uneasy imagining what um, a, a even more strict and extreme propaganda regime will look like. It's not um, – anyway, I'll just leave it at that. I, just, I, I, don't, I don't see it as necessarily a positive on a lot of levels. But, again, they're just starting to push this out, so we are going to be hearing a lot more about this. And because it's Xi Jinping thought on culture, it's not like, let's do more cultural work. It's, it's the big guy's thought – it's going to be really impactful. Right. Well, um, speaking of things we've been hearing a lot about, the export controls. Uh, So we mentioned it earlier in the show. We've mentioned it a lot over the last six months or so. Saturday marked one year since the announcement of additional export controls related to advanced semiconductor manufacturing in China. And this is one of the signature foreign policy decisions of the Biden administration. And so it it is a big story and continues to be. And as we wait for new rules to be passed, um, I mentioned on the last show that digging into the weeds of the specific execution of this policy can be a little bit cumbersome if you're not actually a member of the chip industry. But uh, Gregory C. Allen at the Center for Strategic and International Studies wrote the following that I thought was pretty useful and has summed up a lot of what you and I have discussed on the podcast. The United States has incurred essentially all of the costs of an aggressive export control policy toward China, but it has done so in a way that does not provide all the potential strategic benefits of actually constraining China's future technological capabilities. Beginning in 2018, the United States has imposed costs upon China that are severe enough to persuade China to accelerate the indigenization. Indigenization. There you go. Thank you so much um, (laughs) of its semiconductor supply chain. But the United States and its allies have not, at least thus far, implemented export controls that are tight enough and multilateral enough to definitively prevent China from succeeding in indigenizing 
Previously, the United States allowed Huawei to stockpile U.S. chips before cutting Huawei off. More recently, the United States has allowed Chinese chip fabs to stockpile U.S., Dutch, and Japanese equipment before imposing broad restrictions on the sale of such equipment. Even now, China is still acquiring significant technology and know-how from South Korean and other firms. So to anybody who's broadly unfamiliar with what the policies have been and what the problems are with the current policies, I really strongly recommend you go read the the piece from Gregory C. Allen, and we'll put it in the show notes, because I thought he did a really good job laying out in plain terms yes. um, the way this has evolved and the holes that are in the current policies, sloppy drafting of past rules, or... Um, from a different perspective, could be very careful drafting to allow room for U.S. companies yeah, to I, circumvent I, them. I, I, I'm not a big believer in these sloppy. Yes, may, think, maybe pretty deliberate. A lot deliberate. of these things were written with significant input from lobbyists and people very well versed in export control law. I have no um, who, doubt. Who, yes, who knew what they were doing, and maybe the folks at BIS. I mean, there's a small team. They didn't necessarily understand some of the stuff that was written into it. So was there anything else that jumped out at you from the Greg Allen report before we moved to the New York Times reporting that surfaced in the last week or so? It's really infuriating because we've talked about this on previous podcasts. It's, it's, it's sort of the whole, you know, the U.S. did all this at significant cost to these companies, at significant cost to, I think, U.S. reputation globally, um, at significant uh, benefit in some ways to the Chinese because of the, to the, to the, to the, it PRC focuses their of, energy because they focus their energy. It allowed them to really coalesce around. We have to indigenize our entire semiconductor stack supply chain as effectively de-Americanize as quickly as possible. Um, and, you know, it did it in ways that haven't been that effective. Now, some people mm-hmm. will say, Oh no, they still, I think Alan does a pretty good job of going through what all some of the bigger loopholes are and effectively how, um, if the goal was to, as articulated around the, the original policy, the way some of these things were written and then were implemented and some of the exceptions around export licenses granted, et cetera, um, in many ways undermined a lot of the original goals. And so the U.S., I think, is is in some ways in a worse position for doing this and doing it in kind of a Swiss cheesy kind of way than in not doing it at all. Right. And one of the things that he highlights is that the initial export controls passed under Trump left all this room for companies to circumvent them. And- oh yeah, that was I, I wrote about that at the time. I mean, th- those were those those were very much written by folks who knew what they were doing with heavy right. input from industry. And yeah, as tough as the Trump guys thought they were being, they left like loopholes that you could drive an entire train through. Well, and there were bans on selling equipment that could be used to manufacture seven nanometer chips. But if you use the same equipment to manufacture 28 nanometer chips or 14 nanometer chips, you're fine selling that equipment as long as the company on the other side of that deal says we're using it for 28 nanometer or 14 nanometer. Basically, you're taking people at their word. And the other thing that I found interesting is as much as there's been this uproar and heightened scrutiny in the wake of the Huawei phone that was announced during Secretary Raimondo's visit, um, a lot of the pieces of that particular supply chain, all of that was in place before the 
October 7th, export controls were passed last year. So as much as people look at that phone as proof that the October 7th export controls failed, it certainly sounds like that particular failure dates back further than the Biden administration. No, that's policy. a good that, that that's a good point. I mean, I think it's and it's a again, it you know, there's so much money at stake and you know, you get again, you have very large companies who um you know, they have a lot of money, they have a lot at stake of losing business in China. Um and you know, there are folks who argue, you know, truly believe that we lose, you know, lose the China market. It, it hampers the ability to do R and D. We lose visibility to the market. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, you know, you could many. It's a very complicated discussion with many sides. And I think ultimately, what happened was ended up being sort of this compromise that that effectively, um, again, I think it. I be, I've just become very, very, um, very disillusioned with sort of where the U.S. has ended up with this policy. I think if they were going to do it, they should have done it all the way. Um, which have had its own set of real downstream problems, um, but again, I do I think it's worse to have done it the way they did it, where again you just sort of end up doing it half-assed and it's sort of bad on every angle. Right. Yeah, and uh, to do it all the way also means enlisting partnerships around the world to make sure that other countries are on board. Right, and, and it's it's easier said than done. I mean, you you'd have to you have to force effectively coerce Dutch, South Koreans, Japanese. Um, and so it, it, in some Which ways- Which they've sort of done, but also there are still loopholes on yeah. in some of those countries and those markets. Yeah. So so I think, but you know, the other side is you're getting a lot of triumphalist sort of talk out of China, like, oh, everything failed, they failed, they failed. And part of that, I think, is, you know, stirring up national sentiment, real pride around Huawei's achievement. Part of it, though, also, I think, I think you see it in some of the stuff that's being published in sort of overseas outlets is I do think there's also an, an effort to- convince, you know, sort of say, hey, they failed, so the U.S. should just drop them. Because, of course, I mean, right. they have caused the Chinese pain. They have caused, mm-hmm. I shouldn't, I, they have caused the Chinese pain. I just don't think they've achieved the goals that, that the people in the U.S. government ex- who are really pushing for them wanted or expected them to achieve. And so now the question, and this is what Greg Allen's piece, I think, summer, you know, concludes with, is the question of, well, if the U.S. wants to do a quote-unquote right, here's the things they need to do. Right. Um, to close, and the to question close is the loopholes. I don't think I don't think those, those are yeah. How many of those can actually be done? And I think the answer is probably not that many. Um, right. And well, you know, there's we'll see. And again, I think the fact that this updated rule hasn't come out, you know, it's three days after the anniversary. We'll see. You know, there is increasing pressure from the at least the, the GOP side of the aisle and Congress in the House on the administration. You know, really sort of starting to ask a lot of tough questions about sort of how the, you know, the actual execution and implementation of the export control um, rules. We'll see if the Biden administration has to react or if they, you know, basically we're getting into election season. The House is a chaos anyway. They can just sort of mm-hmm. ignore it, sort of like they ignored TikTok, right? I still can't believe the TikTok issue was successfully buried. Congrats again to their lobbyists. Well, and um, there's some new bill that's being written that Commerce supposedly like supports, but you know if Commerce supports it, then it's probably going to be one of those. Um, I mean, again, Commerce is not going to come out on one Swiss of Swiss cheese. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because it's just whatever. It is what, you know what? It's DC and 
Well, speaking of DC, the most interesting aspect of this story to me now is over the weekend, the New York Times reported NVIDIA's interest in think tanks raised some alarm with word spreading across Washington that the company had questioned the research of Gregory C. Allen, the director of a Center for Advanced Studies at CSIS, who supports export restrictions. Four people said. Amid discussions between NVIDIA and members of CSIS's fundraising staff, several people in policy circles, including Jason Matheny, the president of the RAND Corporation, called the center to voice concerns that NVIDIA was trying to use its influence to sideline Mr. Allen, the two people familiar with the call said. So the way that is worded very carefully, sideline Mr. Allen, um, not entirely sure what that means. Sounds like they were trying to get him fired. I and think we talked about this in July on a podcast. I, I can't remember. Trouble, like. I, can't, I, yeah, I can't remember whether we said it on the pod or off, but there have been rumors to this effect for yeah. several months now. And, you know, I said it over the summer when we talked about the lobbying effort and, and some of the ultimatums they were delivering in meetings with state and commerce. One of the things that's interesting about doing this podcast every week is not just learning about China, but learning about the way our government operates, the way our lobbying machine operates. And on this one, the details are pretty nasty. Like Gregory Allen has been a, an indispensable resource to me as I try to learn about these issues. And I think ben, he's sort of- Ben, a, I think, has interviewed him, I think, twice now. It's multiple times. He, yeah. And he just does a very good, comprehensive, objective job. And so the sequence there with NVIDIA dangling a, a donation, allegedly, and then the donation will only be delivered if Mr. Allen is sidelined. It, it sounds like something Big Tobacco would have tried to do in the 90s or something. And so, Big chip. Big yeah, chip. Is that what big you're saying? Chip. I, I, all I can say is I really did not enjoy uh, reading it, but I also thought it was interesting that there's now sort of on the record-ish um, confirmation that that's what went on. And you are right about how it was um, very carefully written. I think, um, yeah. because the, the story that's been going around in D.C. Is, has a lot more detail to it. Um, but I guess the New York Times couldn't actually sort of fully confirm everything that's been sort of the scuttlebutt. Um, Does the fact that this is going public in the Times indicate that the chip companies lost the battle? No, I, I think it just was such a became such a thing. You know, we had that podcast in July because there was all this talk going around about, you know, the think tanker and i actually don't think we mentioned it was greg but we talked about sort of a campaign against the think tanker and a campaign against a white house a, a official in the white house um which the new york times didn't talk about in this article um so we'll just leave that one aside but you know again at the time when we talked about it it was what i was hearing and i know other people in dc were hearing this effort to take better control of the narrative mm -hmm. um, around the semiconductor or semiconductor controls and obviously you know NVIDIA is it would make sense as a company to be especially concerned about it given given just how much money is at stake for them. Yeah. So, well, I mean, there's like tens, hundreds of billions of dollars at stake yeah, for all of these companies. Trillion plus in market cap, right? And so, uh, you know, again, there's this is not a new thing that link donations to personnel um, in other industries. It, I think it's, it's it, it, you know, for whatever reason, I, you know, the, the bigger donation didn't go to CSIS. I think CSIS, CSIS said, ultimately said no. Um, right. And, and so Greg Allen is good. still employed. He's still there and he's still writing a piece. And I think the piece he put out, 
the last few days is probably something that the folks like NVIDIA would probably prefer not be published, but it was published. So that's good. Yep. In general, before we move on, how would you explain the urgency for export controls if a normal person asked you why this is important to America's national security? That's part of the problem. That's a great question. And that goes back to the, well, what, you know, the U.S. keeps talking about this small yard, high fence idea. I think Bob Gates first pushed it out years ago. Um, You know, and some people say, well, you know, do you want the missile that's going to blow up a U.S. ship be built with, you know, carrying or designed with U.S. chips, right? It's sort of one Mm -hmm. of the simplistic ways some people would argue it. I mean, the the problem ultimately is like from when it comes to military hardware i mean a lot of a lot of the chips are not like three and five nanometer chips right right a lot they're of bigger more chips, anyways. chips i think the issue is around like cutting edge nvidia chips for big ai models i mean i think those are ones where you know those can be also used for things like nuclear weapons modeling and, mm. and you know but even if you push the chinese you know the, the chinese are stuck at like two generations behind the U.S. was using chips to, to model nuclear weapons testing and, and you know design on previous generations too, right? So in some ways it's in some ways it's basically like you're trying to hold you're, you're trying to hold the water back with standing in the water with like a big net that sort of has like a Swiss cheese grater, right? Right. Yeah. You know, it's no, like I... it's it's in some ways it, it like you do it and maybe you can target certain parts and maybe that'll slow things down but then the water kind of flows around you and behind you and so i think in some ways it's a very very difficult task and then to your point i mean what is the how do you explain it to the average american i, I mean again i don't it's it's i'm struggling to do it on the podcast so i don't yeah, I'm not no, sure yeah no i mean and, and and that's one of the reasons i ask is i continue to be curious as someone who doesn't have a security clearance like all right is this an urgent national security concern because of the military applications of five nanometer and three nanometer chips? Is it more about economic competition, which the Chinese certainly think it is and say, look, you're declaring war on our economic development? Or is it some combination where the economic concerns are also part of the deal because ensuring we have long-term economic advantages in tech ultimately is a core national security interest as well. I have no idea. I defer to our intelligence community in terms of what's driving all this, but it's the one question that lingers as we watch all of it play out. So um, I just, I had to ask before we move right. on. You no, know? no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good question. And it is not, um, you know, I think that there, there is, over time, there is a significant cost to the U.S. sort of weaponizing this kind of interdependence. Yeah. And that's why it goes back to the discussion where if you're going to do it, then you need to do it right in the sense that you do it in ways that really make it difficult for what your target to um, at least you slow them down significantly versus in some ways actually accelerating their progress in, in some areas. And I think, you know, I know Ben, Ben's written about some tech he may disagree. He, he you know, I think it, it's one of the things that's going to play out over a number of years, but I do think that you know, the Chinese have an immense amount of engineering, physics, math, talent, um, mm-hmm. nearly unlimited money now for this de-Americanization or indigenization of the semiconductor supply chain. Um, and so uh, in some ways, this I think if you're Xi Jinping on the one hand, this is kind of a pain in your butt because it slows things down. The other hand, this is like a gift. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and one point that has come up frequently on Sharp Tech whenever we discuss this stuff is... 
there is an existential urgency that you can't manufacture out of thin air that is oftentimes a prerequisite for growing some of these industries. And yeah. until you absolutely have to do it, it's just easier to buy from someone else. And the, and really, I mean, the the existential you have to do it really really started. I mean, it you know Snowden did some of it with some of the revelations back then, but the ZTE and then Huawei under Trump really were what right. kind of lit the fire. And then this just this just added more to that. Um, I think. I mean, again, I think what it looks like the Chinese approach really is. I think they they're they know these things aren't going away. They're just really trying to extend, delay, soften as much as possible, but to buy time because there are areas where they have a long way to catch up. Um, you know, the really, the one, the one thing is, you know, ASML is really sort of at this point, the key company where if the U S can keep ASML from selling its most advanced equipment into China, that is the one thing where the Chinese are going to have a very hard time building their own products. Right. And right. that, that is a Dutch company for anyone yeah. who's not familiar um, and they sell lithography machines. But that there's, are required. but there's no, I mean, there's no going back to the way it was. I mean, the thing is, is even if tomorrow the Biden administration said, you know what, this is a mistake. We're going to just get rid of these export controls. I mean, they're not going to do that. But if they did, Chinese aren't going to stop what they're doing in terms of trying to indigenize. No. And, and that's what came through in the, in the Greg Allen piece. Yes. Yeah. You go back to 2018 the U.S. signaled that this was the direction that we would be going, and suddenly China had all sorts of opportunity to stockpile this manufacturing equipment. They dumped tens of billions of dollars into various ventures. Some of the money was stolen. You know that they're shell companies. Investigation. Yeah. You know they'll do. They iterate, right? They'll do another fund, and they they lock up some people, and other people are. I mean, it's sort of like a. Um, it, it, in many ways, it's an iterative process. But over time, I think you know, and they've restructured sort of the science bureaucracy to be more focused on basically building the key technology, the core technology they can control. Um, I mean, that was a part of the, the bureaucratic restructuring in the, in, the, in the spring. And that was in many ways driven by the U.S. export controls. And so mm -hmm. the system has already moved in China. The mentality has already moved. And so there, there is no going back. The question, I think, from the U.S. side is how can the U.S. stay ahead enough and then whether or not they there are areas where they really can slow the Chinese down, and that's the question. Where and are are you willing to kneecap American companies in some areas and say, look, you're going to have right. to take a haircut here because there's national security issues. But some have been kneecapped, like the new Huawei phone. I think kneecapped Qualcomm, right? Qualcomm's not in that phone, right? I mean, there there are already places where you know it, it's 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 a, sort of the question a lot of industries in China, right? Which is. Um, do you want to just squeeze as much revenue as possible out of you can until, as you can out of China until you're replaced? Or do you want to slow down basically, or do you want to slow down the Chinese progression or development to replace you? And so they still have to, they have no choice. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, the government may say the latter, you know, slow them down. Whereas industries like, we just want to make as much money as we can while we can. Cause you also have to remember a lot of these companies are public. The CEOs don't necessarily care about five years from now, right? right. They got to hit their quarterly Nor numbers. Nor did the shareholders. Their bonuses yeah. are based on the annual results. They may be gone in five years. Well, uh, speaking of interdependence, uh, a natural place for us to close is Apple. The Wall Street Journal, uh, about a week and a half ago, Apple's latest China challenge, a crackdown that could shrink its app store. Apple staff met with Chinese officials in recent months to discuss concerns over new rules that will restrict the tech giant from offering many foreign apps currently available on its iPhone app store in China. 
China's move to restrict the apps would close a loophole in the Great Firewall that allows Chinese iPhone users to download popular Western social media apps such as Instagram, X, parentheses formally Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and WhatsApp. While China has for years blocked web access to those sites, iPhone users who download the services apps can engage on the platforms if they log on through a virtual private network or VPN that connects them to an internet server outside the country. Many users, especially younger people, do this even though China bans the use of unauthorized VPNs. Uh, So I read this for two reasons, Bill. Number one, given everything I've read about the Great Firewall, I'm kind of stunned this loophole hadn't already been closed. Like, how is it possible that the government goes to all these lengths and then you could just download Twitter from the app store and and get on with a VPN? I I don't think Apple's going to win this lobbying effort because it makes no sense. This was a Wall Street Journal article. When was this? This was at the end of um, end of September. September. Yeah, no, it's it's a, you know, the, the app store, the Chinese app stores, it's been a bit of a whack-a-mole over the years, but they've gotten much tighter. The, the, the control has gotten much tighter, and I'm surprised they would still even have any of these loopholes. Right. Like, I remember reading stories about them policing certain Hong Kong news outlets and, and like, discreet threats um, and the idea that these giant Western apps were allowed to be in there uh, surprised me. But the second reason I wanted to read it is... Uh, That Apple News gives me an excuse to play a video that went viral over the past few weeks. This is Tim Cook talking at Fortune Magazine, a conference they held back in 2017. So here, we'll play the clip. There's a confusion about China that, uh, and let me at least give you my opinion. The, The popular conception is that companies come to China because of low labor cost. I'm not sure uh, what part of China they go to, but the truth is China stopped being the low labor cost country many years ago. And that is not the reason to come to China from a supply point of view. The reason is because of the skill and the, the quantity of skill in one location and the type of skill it is. Like um, the products we do require really advanced tooling and the the precision that you have to have in tooling and working with the materials that we do are state of the art and the tooling skill is very deep here you know in in the US you could have a meeting of tooling engineers and i'm not sure we could fill the room in china you could fill multiple football fields it's that vocational vocational expertise is very deep, very, very deep here. And I, and I give the, uh, the education system a lot of credit for continuing to push on that even when others were de-emphasizing vocational. Now I think many countries in the world have woke up and said, you know, this is a key thing and we've got to correct that. But China called that right from the beginning. And so, like I said, that clip was circulated widely online the past few weeks. And along the way, it prompted this response tweet from someone named Jonathan Sign on Twitter. And I just he works enjoyed up on reading the, this. He works up on the, on, on the Hill. Well, I did not know a lot of what's in here. So just for some history for anyone who's unfamiliar, what he says is what Cook says in that video is at best a half-truth. 
Yes, China does have a big semi-skilled labor force capable of working with precision tooling, but pointing to the vocational system explains almost none of the current situation. Here is one of the most important reasons, foreign investment. Apple and Foxconn have spent billions on getting and putting precision equipment into their facilities in China. They have similarly trained large swaths of China's labor force to use them. On-job training across China's numerous vibrant production centers is likely what accounts for the astounding size of China's relatively skilled labor force. This is a combination of wholly domestic and foreign invested firms, but Apple and Foxconn have probably played an unparalleled role in facilitating the training of China's labor force. And then he links a, a piece from the FT where they write, as iPhone production ramped up, the value of Apple's long-lived assets in China, primarily equipment it uses in the production of devices, soared from $370 million in 2009 to $7.3 billion in 2012. These spectacularly significant investments meant that by 2012, Apple's machinery in China had become more valuable and all of Apple's buildings and retail stores put together, according to Horace Didu, a former Nokia executive. Such vast sums enabled Apple to come up with production techniques that others could not imagine. In 2008, for instance, it launched a unibody MacBook Pro made from a single block rather than multiple parts, a feat of industrial engineering offering, quote, a level of precision that is completely unheard of in this industry, said Johnny Ive, who is um, legendary for helping design the iPhone. So I don't know whether you have anything to add there, but I just wanted to mention it because I found it fascinating to read specifically how extensive Apple's China investments were. No, I mean, I think I think there was a, a his comments on those the Cook video were, or Cook's comments years ago make a lot of sense. I mean, I think there's, I mean, China, you know, China has a well-educated labor force and they're willing and able to be trained and to learn this stuff. I mean, it's very symbiotic, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, one of the questions would be if Apple were to try and undergo the same sort of on-the-job training in the U.S., could it even work? Could it work? I'm not yeah. Sure. I, I'm not sure it could. So yeah. It's sort of a combination of the two. Well, and I think it, it's valuable perspective. Um, we'll put the Financial Times article in the show notes. It was interesting to read the history, but it, particularly to Tim Cook's point, it, it has been about more than just outsourcing manufacturing work for low prices. And when you step back and yeah. read the quote from Johnny Ive, I mean, this is the most successful company America has, number one, yeah. and probably the most successful product innovation of my lifetime with the iPhone. And mm -hmm. The story there is indivisible from the relationship between the U.S. Yeah. and China. It, it's, and, it's, uh, the, it's the company with the most, has gained the most and has the most at stake when it comes to China in many ways. Right. And there were real efficiencies passed on yeah. to like American consumers as a result of the, uh, the interdependence. Yeah. Um, and so uh, just another sort of big picture reminder of how difficult decoupling will actually be and, and what the real benefits were. It wasn't just, you know, cheaper labor and higher profit margins. Those were benefits though. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, they, true. No, I mean, that, you know, that's not be, you know, Apple wouldn't be as valuable as it is without those benefits too. That's very fair. And uh, on that note, actually Wait, we have, one we more have, note. Um, we have an MBA discussion, don't we? Exactly. Do, no, do we, we have, have a minute for that? 
Sharp China Sports. Lest we forget, Kyrie Irving. Uh, Rolling Stone wrote about this last week. Kyrie Irving, the singular basketball talent and moth to the flame of NBA controversy, has embarked on a rebranding campaign with his new corporate benefactor, Chinese apparel giant Anta. Irving is now the superstar face of Anta basketball in a deal that also makes him the brand's chief creative officer. In late September, Irving and Anta unveiled Kyrie's new logo called Enlightened Warrior. This Anta, I can't believe he's calling himself the Enlightened Warrior. This Anta debut turns the page on a disturbing chapter in Irving's career, but has his deal with the Chinese shoe giant simply opened the lid on an even darker controversy. Anta has been linked to forced labor by Uyghur Muslims, a part of the atrocities the U.S. State Department has decried as, quote, crimes against humanity and a, quote, genocide by the Chinese government. Inking the partnership in July, Irving wore a hat reading FREE in all caps. He insisted the company was a fit with, quote, my virtues and my morals. There's a dark irony to Irving's celebration of freedom in his new business partnership, and to proudly sources cotton from China's Xinjiang province in defiance of international bans on the material, which is closely linked to the forced labor of Uyghur Muslims in the humanitarian catastrophe in the region. Uh, now, Bill, we talked about Xinjiang on the last episode, so I want to be clear that nothing about the human rights violations in Xinjiang is funny. However, Kyrie Irving is so unbelievably full of crap that um, having him be the spokesman for Anta is pretty delightful to me. And, Good luck uh, to Anta. I, I, I mean, mean, but we they keep can't, exporting you know, the most obnoxious NBA players. I feel bad. China's <laughs> been stuck with James Harden a couple months ago, and now Kyrie is the face of Anta. Well, they also got Stefan Marbury, who wasn't so annoying, right? He, he had his own issues, but he wasn't like this. Yeah, no, he carved out a nice little fairy tale ending for himself yeah. over in there's Beijing. A statue I'm of him in Beijing, yeah. If we ever sincerely get to very happy Beijing, for him. We'll go, to the, we'll go to the statue. You know what? Um, I promise you, we absolutely will do that. Um, <laughs> Kyrie, though, I don't know, man. Uh, again, just because I don't know how closely you follow him, but he is like the worst possible teammate, wildly unprofessional. And then he can try to gloss over some of his professional shortcomings by just sort of rambling about his commitment to humanity and how much he cares about the world and the earth and everything else. Didn't he go on some big anti-Semitic rant, too? I mean, he's like got all these like. Yeah, there have been some pretty serious lapses along the way. So in some ways, maybe he's the perfect spokesman or or it's his true self as he as he sort of talks about when he talks about why he likes Anta. I mean. I wonder what they're paying him. It's got to be a big number. Got to have yeah. at least two commas in that, I would imagine. <laughs> well, he's nothing if not a gigantic hypocrite and has been for several years. So I'm glad you reminded me. There's your Sharp China Sports Dispatch. Now we can actually end the episode. And um, this is a free episode, first episode of the month outside the paywall. So To anyone who's listening for the first time, you can access all our episodes by subscribing to either Bill at Cynicism or to Stratechery, where you'll get this podcast and several other podcasts from me and writing from Ben Thompson. Really, please subscribe to both. A lot of value on both ends as far as I'm concerned, and we'll put links in the show notes for anyone who'd like to check it out. 
But Bill, it's been great to see you again. I, I missed not podcasting last week, so it's nice to be back, you know, and I'm excited to keep it rolling. Yes, me too. It's all it's all good. It's good to be back. And uh, let's hope next week maybe there's better news for the world. That's right. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Andrew.